Philippi was an outpost in the Roman Empire in the East. Patriotism and nationalism were its hallmarks. Paul writes to the church there to remind them of their call to something higher, a power greater than any nation or military. Jesus is the one true Lord, the only one worthy of anyone's devotion. But Jesus is not one to lord his power over us. Jesus is the God who gave up everything to serve out of love. And we as followers are called to follow his example. This is a series about following the ways of Jesus. And in the midst of anything that comes against us, know that joy and peace because Jesus, the king of the universe, has come so close as to live within us. Amen. Amen. Uh, would you like to take a seat? It's very nice to see you all. Welcome. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Ed, and I lead the church with my wife, Hannah, and thank you for the ringing endorsement from Adam about my preaching. Uh, this will go on for hours and hours and hours, uh, and it won't be very good, apparently, uh, which is lovely. Uh, I don't pres presume to um, be uh, up with modern culture. I'm afraid. Uh, but I do think I know that microbreweries are about 10 years old uh, by now, or maybe 20 years old. Anyway, uh, Adam's in kids' church. I'll remind him of that later. Uh, it's very nice to see you. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, we are going through the book of Philippians, uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. We have made it to chapter 4. Uh, the final chapter, and uh, Jamin is going to come and read to us the first um, few verses. Jamin, round of applause for Jamin. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Iodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Thank you, Jamin. Just a short little passage for today. That was very good. Euodia and Syntyche. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so Philippians is kind of one of the happiest letters of Paul. Uh, there really isn't any rebuke in it. Excuse me, I'm just going to... That. Um, it's clear that Paul really thinks the world of this church. He loves them. He um, thinks that they are wonderful. He's very proud with them. He is happy with them. Verse 1, he calls them brothers and sisters. They're the ones he loves, the ones he longs for. They're his dear friends. They are his joy and his crown. So he really is gushing at this point. Um, and it's good to remember for us, isn't it, that that is really what church is supposed to be like. Um, I've been in church leadership now for more than 17 years. I put 15, and I was telling Hannah about this, and she said it's more like 17. So I'm going to say it's 17, uh, which makes me a bit old. Um, but I've been doing this now for kind of 17 years or so. Um, and in that time, I've had the amazing privilege of uh, not just um, kind of being with people who have become dear friends, but also working with people who have become dear friends. And um, the friendship and the, just the joy of actually doing this thing when it's, when it's going um, as it's supposed to is, is amazing. It's one of our sort of um, tenets that church should actually be really fun and it should be great. It's why we um, do karaoke and 
play pickleball, silly old pickleball, and uh, it's why we do trivia nights and why we go to um, the park to have picnics and do those sorts of things and have newcomers' drinks and et cetera, et cetera, because it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be really great, and it's, um, it's wonderful uh, to be able to enjoy that because when the Spirit is at work in us, he brings us together, and we love one another. We can't help but love one another. It's very strange that. People we normally think we would have nothing in common with. We would never share a room with. We would never spend any time with. What we find is the more that the Spirit is at work, the more that we're actually letting Jesus in. We actually love them. We want to spend time with them. We want to be with them. Because this is what Jesus has designed the whole thing to do. And this is precisely what Paul is saying here. He loves them. They're his joy. They are his crown. Nevertheless, though, within this wonderful church, not everything is rosy. Euodia and Syntyche are having a Barney. Do you know what that means? No. Okay. Uh, Barney rubble. Barney rubble from the Flintstones. Barney rubble trouble. Uh, This is Cockney rhyming slang. Uh, you rhyme something, and then you just say the word. Got it? So Barney Rubble rhymes with trouble. They're having trouble. They're having a Barney. Got it? You guys really should know this. This is important life lessons for you. They're having a Barney. You're welcome. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind of the Lord, says Paul. Now, Euodia and Syntyche, we don't really know much about, but given Paul's concern over them, they are both likely prominent and influential leaders in the church. Uh, There were a number of important leaders in the early church who were women, and these two were amongst them. And so look at that. Women can be leaders in the church. Who'd have thought? And it looks like Euodia and Syntyche were two such people. They were probably both hosting church gatherings in their home. But the nature of what they're conflicting over is not clear. However, it is obviously serious enough for Paul to need to address directly. Perhaps he's concerned that this conflict will split this uh, church of which he is so proud. So what this reminds us is actually something we should remember over and over again. It's a foundational principle for uh, our church, their church, any church ever. A biblical church or a biblical relationship is not one without conflict. In fact, the presence of conflict may actually well indicate that we are dealing with our relationship, our church, in a biblical Jesus-like way. A biblical Jesus-like church is not one marked by the absence of conflict. A biblical Jesus-like church is one marked by the presence of a deep, deep desire to reconcile, a desire for peace and for unity. It's one that will fight tooth and nail to restore that unity when it is lost. So how do we know that conflict is inevitable in church? Well, have you seen how much of the New Testament is dedicated to things like forgiveness? Have you seen how often it goes on about forbearing Have you seen how often it goes on about maintaining unity? The need for forgiveness presupposes that there is something that needs to be forgiven. 
The need for forbearance presupposes that there is something that we need to bear with. The need for unity to be maintained presupposes that there is a threat to that unity. Conflict is an absolute inevitability in a biblical church, just as it is in any biblical relationship. Uh, I know of a pastor, he, I think he just stepped down quite recently, but he led a big church in Ohio for a long time, and he has this rule where he will not marry any couple who has not gone through and found some degree of resolution to some big conflicts. He will just not marry them. Because, he says, developing conflict resolution skills is crucial for a healthy marriage. A good marriage is not one where everyone says, we never have any conflict. In fact, this pastor says, if he sees a couple who never have conflict, he suspects one of three things of the relationship. Are you ready? One or both of the parties is either dead, <laughs> dominated, or dumb. Dead, because it's very hard to have a conflict with a corpse. Uh, dominated, because when one party in the relationship has all the power, conflict is avoided because the other party isn't allowed to ever express themselves. And dumb, both in the non-speaking sense and in the not having anything interesting to ever say sense, because couples can avoid conflict if one party never ever states any opinion about anything ever. So, uh, friends, if you want to avoid conflict, find someone who is dead, or who you can dominate, or who is too dumb to say anything ever. Or, alternatively, be that person. Be that person for someone else. But whilst this obviously may lead to a conflict-free relationship, it won't lead to a happy or a healthy one. And the research backs it up. The California divorce... Yeah. The California Divorce Mediation Project reported from their research over a number of decades that 80%, 80% of the time that couples divorce are due to couples slowly growing apart and losing a sense of closeness that led them to feeling unloved or unappreciated. The vast majority of couples divorce not because they have too much conflict, but because they don't actually have enough. You see, the Bible is so wonderfully realistic, and it should be no surprise that it tallies with the research on the ground. It says conflict is inevitable. Even between Christians, even between good godly Christians, you're going to have conflict. It's a sign, actually, that the relationship is working because a healthy couple conflict because each party is treated with the respect and love that they deserve. And part of treating people with respect and love is hearing and voicing opposing opinions. It means allowing people actually close enough to actually affect us, both positively and negatively. And then, of course, it's about forgiving and restoring the relationship when we've been hurt. Did you know that the uh, Gottman Institute, which Hannah has quoted a number of times, who have the longest continually running research into human relationships, say that 69%, they're very specific, not 70, not 68, 69% of relational conflicts actually never get resolved. I don't think this should be a surprise. The key to a happy relationship, they say, is not avoiding conflict, that is actually impossible. It's dealing with it healthily. And if this is the case for two people in love, how much more when we come together en masse as a church? People from different backgrounds, 
different social standings, different ages and cultures and political views and upbringings. So let us remember that in this room and in this church, there are people who are very, very different to us. But we're in it together. That's what you signed up for. And so importantly, in our difference, some of us will need to remember that we are not the standard for the right way to think about things or the right way to be Christians. The church is wonderful, of course, but it's made up of fallen people living in a fallen world. And our fallenness can often lead us to regard ourselves as the only true arbiter of knowing the right perspective of how things should go, or the thing, to think that if everyone was just like me, wouldn't it all just be so much better? I remember talking to someone a few years ago, uh, and without any hint of irony, this person said to me that he had never been wrong about anyone ever. And I really, I pushed him on it, because I thought, he, he can't mean that. I pushed him on it, he said, nope, I have never been wrong about anyone ever. And yet, paradoxically, at the same time, is it also not true that some of us can flip to the other end of the spectrum? At times, we think everybody should be like us, and at other times, it's precisely the offensive traits that we often have the biggest problem with in other people that are actually the ones that we most dislike in ourselves. One of my daughters, and I asked her about this, and she let me say this, one of my daughters is very like me. Two of my daughters are not very like me. Do you know which daughter I have most conflict with? Ultimately, though, the reason we will have conflict in our relationships, in our marriages, in our churches, is because, from a biblical perspective, we live between two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness on one hand and the kingdom of Jesus on the other. Jesus has announced his kingdom has come. It's a kingdom of goodness, release from oppression and the pain of the past, it's one of healing and restoration and deliverance from evil and unconditional forgiveness, all signs of God's settled attitude of unmerited grace towards us, the objects of his affection, his people made in his image. The kingdom has come in Jesus. That's what he announces. Here it is, here I am. And in his death and resurrection, which we celebrated in communion, we are celebrating the particular and final and fundamental moment of that inauguration, that death has been defeated, that sin has been dealt with. It has all been nailed to that cross and destroyed forever. And so what God has done in Jesus is he has reconciled himself to fallen people. And he has given us as fallen people the ability to reconcile ourselves to one another. And yet, of course, whilst Jesus has come and his kingdom has come, it's still not fully realized. It is here, but not fully here. The kingdom of darkness has been defeated, but it still exerts its influence on us. We are not yet perfected. We stumble. We fall. We do things we shouldn't do. We think things and we say things we shouldn't as well. And in our fallenness, we cause hurt and pain to one another and ourselves. And so the daily question for all of us is, which kingdom are we going to choose? 
The kingdom of darkness is present wherever discord and disunity and unforgiveness and hatred and anger are allowed to fester and grow. Jesus' kingdom, by contrast, is marked by peace and unity and love and forgiveness. So we can operate from our fallen nature. We can choose the values of the kingdom of darkness or we can choose to let Jesus' kingdom come rushing in in all its power and wonder. So what sort of church do we want? What sort of church does Jesus want? A fleshly one, the word Paul uses to describe this fallen nature, is not just one of things like sexual immorality and idolatry. It's also one of gossip and slander and envy and critical spirits and unforgiveness too. Don't make the mistake that all God is interested in is the juicy stuff. The murder and the adultery, that's what he's really interested in. He's also actually fiercely concerned with the less obvious stuff, with the bitterness and the jealousy and the slander and the selfish ambition too. So, what are we going to choose? Now, I've got to say this to you. Whatever you choose, you'll be fine because of Jesus. But what he is always calling us as a church and as individuals into is more. There's always so much more. To be more fully who you are. To be more fully what he has made you to be. So can I encourage us all, let us be bold enough to let him all the way in. In all the ways in which we choose to regress. And there is always a choice. There's always a moment when we can go one way or the other. So let us let him into those choices. But also, sometimes, doesn't it feel like there isn't a choice? Don't you feel at times like you have automatically slipped into old or fallen ways and you didn't quite know how you got there? It sort of happened to you. I remember a very vivid um, moment just after my father had died when I was in London. I was driving uh, down the street, uh, off our street. Uh, the entrance to our street was like a um, kind of one-way thing, uh, and it was off this main road. And in order to get into our street, uh, you had to wait for the traffic on the main road to stop, and then you go through. And they had a little one of those boxes that said, uh, keep clear, which is nice, so that we could go through. The problem was the lights at the end of the main road were very short and everyone tried to rush. And I was there driving, trying to get into the street, crossing traffic, and the lights went and all the cars went and then one car accelerated thinking they were gonna get through and they didn't get through and they sat in the middle of the box. And as I'm turning in, all of a sudden I find myself rolling down the window and going, how dare you, you selfish, screaming at this person. I've never done that before or since. <laughs> and I remember seeing this person and seeing her face and she was um, petrified <laughs> uh, and also sad. And then I remember seeing who it actually was. Uh, a mum from the school that my kids went to. A mum who I had chatted at, with at the school gates and we laughed about things. And she was very nice, and she was there. And then I looked at the ground, and she looked at the ground. And then we had to wait interminably long for the lights to change. And then they changed, and I drove through, and I burst into tears. 
because she knew who I was. She knew I was a church leader. And I just felt so ashamed. Anyway, I, I apologized to her later, and um, she was very nice and then never looked me in the eye ever again. In that moment, I didn't really think I had a choice. It just sort of, this rage just sort of came out of me. But what I realized very soon afterwards is that this was all there in me because I was really angry about my dad dying. I was really angry about what it meant for my mom and my brothers. And I was in pain. And what I hadn't done was let Jesus into any of it. I hadn't let him into the anger and the rage. I'd just sat in it. I'd probably even indulged it a little bit. And then it all came out. Because it will always, always come out. So if there are times when you feel, I didn't have a choice, it just came out, it was out of nowhere. And it might not just be anger, it could be anything. It could be, oh, I'm going to have a good old gossip about this person, or I'm going to go and do this, or this, or this. I think it's almost certainly because there is an unhealed wound there, deeper beneath the surface. And no amount of trying harder. No amount of hoping to do better next time, to make more godly choices in the moment, is going to heal that wound. If you find yourself acting completely out of character, I don't know where that came from, it's almost certainly because there is something deeper unhealed beneath. A um, bunch of us used to play soccer in England as a kind of church staff team, and we'd go and play five-a-side soccer. And there was one guy who was the sweetest, nicest dude you'd ever meet. Such a great guy. But when he crossed the threshold of the soccer field, he became such, like, screaming at everyone, challenging every decision, just being a real, like, it was really hard to play with him. And then after a few months of playing with him, he emailed everyone, and he said, I'm not going to play soccer anymore. I don't like who I am. It's not me. Now, I understand what he meant, but the thing is, that was him. Not all of who he was, of course, but part of who he was. And for most of his life, he could hide it or not be confronted by it. But then on the soccer field, that's when it came out. Who we are is seen not actually when things are going great. We see who we are when the pressure's really on. The pressure of five-a-side Monday night mediocre standard soccer. Now, the thing for all of us to remember is that we all have these things unseen. But now and again, the symptoms of these deeper pains and hurts will surface. We will fly off the handle, or we will regress into patterns of behavior. We will find ourselves going back to what we were, or doing things that we really wish we hadn't, or we'll do something out of character. So actually, there is always a choice to be made. Someone else is gossiping about that person. Shall I join in? Shall I join in? I think I'm going to join. I'm joining in, and I have got some very interesting things to add to this conversation, and I feel wonderful about it. Sometimes there's the choice in the moment, but actually often there's the choice right now, before, today, tomorrow, in the day before you go to Thanksgiving with your parents or to Christmas with whoever it is. There's the choice now to go, what is it that Jesus is putting his finger on? In verse nine, um, which we kind of skipped uh, to we'll look at it in more detail next week. Paul says this, 
Whatever you learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Jesus' kingdom is the kingdom of the God of peace. Paul is asking his church to follow his example, to put into practice his teaching, which is actually shorthand terms for saying, follow Jesus' example and follow Jesus' teaching, put Jesus' teaching into practice. As he says elsewhere to the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The point is they haven't seen Jesus, they have seen Paul, and Paul is saying, I'm trying to do what Jesus is doing. And then, as you do what Jesus has called you to do, the peace will flood your lives and your church. Paul pleads with Yodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. He calls them to sort out their differences, not to sit on them. And then he says this, verse 3, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women. Now, no one knows who this true companion is that Paul's referring to. But what is clear is that he, need, he knows that Euodia and Syntyche may actually need some help. So, for us, it's often helpful to admit that we might need help too. None of us is experts in conflict resolution, are we? It's not always simple or easy. And so, if I may, I want to end by offering some very practical help to us all. And don't worry, I'm offering it to myself as well. I know it's possible for preachers to preach, hey, just do what I say, don't do what I do. Uh, but as I've said before, I hope um, you'll understand that you get to hear this for 25 minutes on a Sunday. I've been sitting with it all week. It's my job. I have to do this all the time. So I am trying to preach to myself as much as to anyone else. Please hear that. Here are some practical ways for us to be a church of peace. How can we be a place where the kingdom of darkness doesn't take over, but the kingdom of Jesus rules our conflicts and peace reigns? So, what do you do when you feel like you have been wronged by someone? Firstly, identify where the pain has originated. People are complex, are we not? We can be offended by a range of things. We can be offended by someone's personality, by someone's weakness, or by someone's sin. Some people are just not your type of people. There's no way they're going to be. They just aren't. Their God-given personality does not vibe with your God-given personality. Some people in their personality, for example, are very loud and opinionated. Other people in their personality find loudly stated opinion a little bit difficult. These people are probably most likely not going to vibe, right? That's okay. Leave them be. It is who they are. It is who you are. You do not have to be best friends for life. Bless them on their way. What you must not do is tell them that their personality sucks. Just understand that their personality is different to yours. Paul talks about this on a number of occasions. The church is like a body, he says in 1 Corinthians 12. One body, many parts, some are hands, some are eyes, but all, all, every single one is indispensable. An eye should not try and be a hand, a hand should just not try and be an eye. Bless them all. Secondly, we can be offended by people's weaknesses. Some people, for instance, are very anxious people in their weakness. Others in their weakness are perfectionists, other people are very shy, or they're fussy, or they're aggressive, or they're conflict avoidant. These are weaknesses. These are not sinfulnesses in and of themselves per se. They're not disobedient, intentionally disobedient to the things of Jesus. They're weaknesses. 
And Paul tells us this in Romans 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Galatians 6, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. We are called to bear with one another. We are called to carry each other's weaknesses. That is what it means. You do, need not, do, you do not need to go and tell them all about their weaknesses. You do know that you are an incredibly anxious person and it's really annoying. Bear with them. Bear with each other's weaknesses. Now, perhaps, if you have a very close friendship with someone, perhaps if you're married to someone, for instance, and you have, over the years, built the trust and the love and have, that, that comes from being trustworthy and loving, and you have deposited this over and over again so that the person completely does actually trust you and does love you and know that you are trustworthy and that you are loving towards them, perhaps then, very, very ever so kindly, you can say, oh, by the way, I think this thing is, is a bit, um, you know, maybe not right. Should we talk about it? Do you want to talk about it? In terms of weakness. But in general, just bear with one another. It'll be much better for everyone involved. Thirdly, though, we can be offended by people's sin. If someone has said or done something that Jesus tells us not to do and it has caused you hurt and pain, it may be that we do, in this particular instance, need to go to that person. But first, let us identify what causes the pain. Is it just their personality? Is it their weakness? Or is it actually sin? And if it's sin, we can go to the person, but not before we have done some things. Are you ready for the things that you need to do before you go to that person? Here we go. Number one, do not go to that person, but first talk to someone else about it. Please trust me on this. In the vast majority of cases, the only reason we talk to someone else about it is to have a big, old, lovely gossip. We want to feel seen and understood and heard in our offense and our righteous indignation. So we talk to someone else. It bonds us to that person. You'll never guess what that person did to me. And we feel wonderfully vindicated and endorsed and supported, not with the bond of the Holy Spirit, but with the bond of self-righteousness or gossip or slander. It feels great. Doesn't it feel great? I love a gossip. I'm just offering that up to you, I'm sorry. I do love it, it makes me feel wonderful. It does, though, cause untold destruction. Do not do that to Jesus' church. I say this to myself. Just go to the person who's hurt you. You do not need anyone else involved for 99.999% of the time. So don't go to anyone else. Secondly, don't go until you've prayed. Romans 12, 14 says this, bless those who persecute, bless and do not curse. When we are praying, we are praying for God to bless those who have hurt us. To bless is to speak well of. Because in prayer, you can often find that all that righteous indignation that has been boiling up dissipates in the light of seeing what Jesus thinks about the person who has hurt you. 
it actually can be quite helpful to picture Jesus sitting in a chair with you and the other person as you pray, mediating, speaking to each side. And when we allow Jesus in, in prayer, it's often that he ever so gently puts his finger on things that he wants to point out or heal in us as well. And all of a sudden we're going, oh man, there is stuff that I need to sort out here, isn't there? And Jesus loves them, and he loves me. And now Jesus is involved in this whole thing. I can actually see a way through. Thirdly, do not go to the person until you have forgiven them. That's right. You are not going to forgive. You are going because you have already forgiven. Forgiveness is something you do with Jesus, before him. It is a unilateral action. You do not need them to be sorry. You do not need them to seal the pain that they have caused. You do not need them to perform some sort of penance in order to earn your forgiveness. You forgive just as Jesus forgave you. And Jesus forgave you without your knowledge, before you were reconciled to him, whether you think you did anything wrong or not, and whether you wanted it or not. So you must forgive in the same way. Because forgiveness sets us free, and it is done utterly unconditionally. Otherwise, it's not actually forgiveness. Now, there are some times where we think we just can't do it. And there are some times where actually forgiveness is going to take a very long time. It might take the rest of our lives to actually get there. There are times when it just feels impossible. I um, remember uh, someone who actually spoke here after the Alpha course, but she was saying that um, she had had this terrible experience of uh, her mother. Um, but then uh, at Alpha, after the talk about Jesus' forgiveness, about the unconditional love that Jesus has for everyone, about all his forgiveness. She found herself driving home, actually wanting for the first time to, and be able to forgive her mother. And she let her know, and she said, it was like this weight lifted off me that I've been carrying forever. That's the power of forgiveness. It's really for ourselves. And the thing is, when we feel like it's impossible, we can actually go to Jesus who will give us the power to forgive everything. Often I find when I've been able to do that, I don't actually really have to go to the person at all. But if we do feel like we want to go there, Jesus um, says this in Matthew 18, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. So it's just between the two of you. And it's to them as a brother or sister. Someone you care deeply for as a fellow member of Jesus' church. It is out of an abundance of care and love for that person. It's not wanting there to remain any sticking point within God's church. It's not to prove anything. It's because you take seriously the peace that Jesus wants for his church. And finally, go gently. Galatians 6 says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin... You who are spiritual should restore them gently. 
You'll get to go gently because that's how Jesus deals with us. He does not rub it in our faces. He forgives it first, all of it, and cries out on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And then he welcomes us into his family to become children of light. What we are doing is we are helping people take the speck out of their eye, right? So before we go, we need to make sure we haven't got a massive great tree in our eye to deal with all of that. And then we are helping take out a speck of our eye. The eye is incredibly delicate. So we are being incredibly gentle as we take any little speck out of their eye, right? But in general, it may feel like actually having done all those other things, I don't even need to go. Good, good. Let us be a church that chooses a completely radical and different way of dealing with conflict. Let us admit that it's going to be inevitable in all our relationships and in the church. There will be people that will write things on social media which will mean, I, I was hearing this the other day, people saying I've lost so many friends from, being, uh, from what I've seen them do on social media. It's like, how deep was that friendship? If that's all it takes. As Hannah said last week, just get off social media. Honestly, let's just pull it down. One deleted account after another. I know people rely on it for their work. But should we choose a completely different way, the Jesus way, the only way that actually will bring any peace to the world? To admit that there's going to be conflict, but to work and to trust and to do all that we can to live healthily with it, to resolve it where we can. Won't that make this much better, this whole doing life thing, much, much better? Good. That'll do. Amen. Shall we stand? Uh, Tarps and Ben, if we could sing a song. Um, it's just gone 12. I know uh, kids will need to be picked up in a minute. But um, what I want to do is to offer an opportunity to respond. And uh, two things in particular. Firstly, is there someone you need to forgive? If there's someone you need to forgive, can I strongly encourage you to start the process now? It will be a process. But let's start as we mean to go on, which is saying, I want to get to a place of forgiveness. And if it feels impossible, allow Jesus to change your heart, to show you his love, to give you his power to forgive. That's what he's here for. So that's number one. Number two, is there something deep? Is there something that has been sitting with you for a while now that you've never really let Jesus into? And you know that now and again it just spills out in whatever way. Again, would you like just to commit to starting the process now? To let him in to let him, in his grace and his mercy, bring healing and restoration to it. Because that's what he wants to do. Let's sing this song and then we'll pray for people.